What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real Episode 528. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we've got first-time guest Lee Johnson and Wrong Real co-founder Mikhail Karadimov. They're back to discuss their new comedy special short as well as a documentary they're working on and just what it means to be a filmmaker and a comedian during the time of COVID. But Lee, welcome to Wrong Real. Thank you very much for having me. And Mikhail, it's been uh, an age. It's been a spell. You and I recorded an episode back in February, but then it got all yeah. derailed due to um, the world imploding. But um, apart, when was the last time you were on an episode that actually got posted? <laughs> I have no clue, to be honest with you. I don't have no was clue. it you and Carlo discussing uh, the uh, naked Too ones? Long, Too Short, or Just Right? Was it, was it that one, or...? It was either that or maybe naked with uh, with him and um, Scurry. Yeah, and we also did the uh, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson music video one. In any event, it's great to have my uh, my wrong reel wingman back 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 on the team. But uh, catch me up. Let's at least start with you. Like, uh, what is it like working with Mikhail? I, I'm all too uh, aware of what it's like uh, making a podcast with him. But how did you and Mikhail kind of collide and start collaborating? Oh, well, it's just been a dream so far. Um, <laughs> can I can I interject just very quickly? Already? Oh, so, so this is sort of what it's like. I don't like what both of you have just implied about working with me. <laughs> We're not setting the proper tone. Out of the gate. Anyway, yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, uh, Mikhail and I met uh, a couple years ago now at our day job working for a production house in New York. Um that does, it's sort of a, a true crime focused production place. So, you know, lots of that grisly murder stuff. Um, so yeah, we met there and both sort of, you know, uh, realized that working in true crime was not something either of us really cared about uh, and started sort of, you know, just talking about our extra projects. I had already started being a comedian for about a year before I met him. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. We just sort of talking about movies and things we would prefer to be doing and kind of went from there. Now, how did you make the, the pivot to doing stand-up? Because I think there are a lot of people out there who think they might have a shot or they might have a, a, a funny bone, but obviously standing up in front of an audience with just a microphone and nothing else and just talking takes uh, a, a great leap of faith and courage. So how did you kind of steal yourself for that, that pivot? I needed a big push for sure. Like I, when I was a kid, my dream was to be on SNL. So it was like always something I wanted to do. But yeah, just as you said, like get, getting to that first open mic is so, so hard. So I, I actually had a, a friend of mine cornered me at a party and like grabbed my face and was like, listen, Lee, I'm going to ask you to do something and I need you to say yes. And I was just drunk <laughs> enough. I did say yes. <laughs> and she was like, great, we're going to sign up for like a stand up workshop. So that's sort of how I got started. Like a lot of the clubs and different um, companies, you know, you can do like a six week class, like UCB obviously has all their stuff. Um, but yeah, so me and my friend Liza uh, just joined this class together. And that was sort of the bandaid to rip off of like getting to your first mic and having a little structure. And I'm definitely someone that needs like some deadlines and some homework to act. I could procrastinate like forever. Um, so once I had like, some sort of authority figure being like, no, 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 you, you have to do this. Uh, then I started doing it and basically went to my first mic 
three and a half years ago and kind of haven't turned back since. But you mentioned Upright Citizens Brigade. I had a very embarrassing moment where I've never had any aspirations of being a stand-up, but I had a friend who was a comedy critic 20 years ago, and she dragged me to a uh, performance there. And, of course, they love pulling people out of the crowd to participate in sketches, which was uh, – I was super baked. I was not remotely in the mood to try to be a performer that evening. And suddenly I'm in this sketch where they're doing a situation where it's a campfire and people are having to confess things that they don't want to confess – and I remember thinking I was being really cute, and I was like, oh, well, I have webbed feet. And it was just like nothing but crickets chirping. And I was like, Ooh. and then immediately someone like runs across the stage and like changed the sketch to something else. And they like let me go back <laughs> to my chair. And I was like, all right, yeah, maybe uh, doing um, improv theater is not my, uh, my go-to. But now that you know there's something you're into, how often do you try to get on stage? Because what my understanding is that it's a lot like going to the gym if you're a boxer where you got to practice. And luckily in here in New York, there's so many venues where – you can do four or five sets a night if you can get like some some stage time. So, what is kind of your discipline when it comes to just staying active, especially during these weird times of COVID? I mean, in in COVID, it's totally different. I mean, like, yeah, like last year, I could get up like just on mics. You know, mics start around the city at like two o'clock, uh, and then basically go all night, and then shows start around seven. So, I could, and I was sort of. I was still very much like on the mic grind before this. Like I, I had been passed at one club and I'd been doing like a couple shows a week maybe. Um, but I was really still only in the mic thing. So I would try to do like, if not one, one or two a night, like three nights a week, which is already kind of low. There's a lot of like, there's there's a lot of I find uh, sort of competition uh, in terms of like how much you're getting up with other comics and there's some people who are like oh if you're not getting up every day like what the fuck are you doing and I am a little bit lax on that because I just think if I don't have anything if I haven't written anything you know I'm still like grinding on my other bits but you still have to. I'm not just going to go to a mic just to do it and not get anything out of it, you know? I hear you. Yeah, I was listening to an interview with Greg Fitzsimmons, who has a, a very high-paying job writing for uh, Ellen. And even though he makes millions of dollars as a writer and producer, he will still go and do uh, sets at comedy clubs around L.A. for like 20 bucks a pop just because he, A, loves the energy and loves like hanging out with his fellow comedians. But he knows that if he doesn't get in front of an audience and really get the honest response of laughter or no laughter – He'll kind of lose sight of what's funny. So, yeah, he, he has that discipline. But at the end of a long, exhausting day, it's hard to get motivated. And he's like, oh, yeah, I got to go get in line and get a, get up on stage for 10 or 20 minutes and try to make people laugh. But, yeah, so I, I applaud your motivation and courage. I know, obviously, it's hard during these times. But fingers crossed, places like Caroline's and the Comedy Cellar and Village Underground will start coming back. Because one of my favorite parts of living in New York the last 12 years has been the abundance of comedy. I mean, from Comedy Cellar up to Madison Square Garden, I've seen like Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle and Jerry Seinfeld and Joey Diaz and so many people and not getting to see comedy in New York. I feel like the city is lesser as a yeah. result. Yeah, for sure. Vibes for sure. Cause it's just, I mean, it's just like, it's just everywhere. And even beyond like the clubs, like now every other bar will have shows a couple nights a week or, you know, Oh, you walk down McDougal, every other bar has got comedy going on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's just like unavoidable if you're walking pretty much anywhere and like the Brooklyn scene's been really coming up in the past couple of years and like Pine Box and and things around Bushwick which have been really cool um but yeah I mean it all just I know there are a couple outdoor mics um but they all seem to be in Central Park which is not the easiest place for me to get to 
Um, so, but yeah, I mean, it's tough cause you can't, that is the only way to test your material. You know, I know I've talked to other comics where like, Oh, I'll like call my buddies and I'll run bits that way. But it's like, you can write as much as you want. No, you and need then drunk, at the end of the hostile day, strangers to, if you're really going to yeah. get an honest response, you don't want your friends who are that. rooting for you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like you, you're, it can be as cool as you think it is on the page and you're never going to know until you say it in front of someone who doesn't know you. Well, Mikhail, when did you first start getting the idea of shooting a comedy special? Because you and I have had many conversations about your filmmaking aspirations, and so I've seen some of your previous screenplays. But doing something in this vein, it, it, it kind of it, it blindsided me, caught me out of nowhere. So when did you first get that itch? Um, Lee and I uh, shot with our buddy Henry. You know Henry. He was on the podcast once, too, way back when for our Beatles and uh, Rolling Stones episode. Uh, in the early aughts, and uh, we shot a music video for him when it was like one of the hottest days in July, maybe two years ago, uh, just because I was kind of feeling antsy, and we shot that, and then right afterwards, we got back to work, and we were just talking in the office and bullshitting about how we just kind of enjoyed being outside and doing things on our own, and I kind of caught that bug, and I caught that early 30s thing of like, fuck, I need to, I need to start moving, <clears throat> and so... At first, we were talking about one venue next to us in Greenpoint with columns. I was like, fuck, let's just go do it outside. Let's see what the permit situation is. That didn't work out. Slowly but surely, I just, you know, we just started planning for Lee's mom's rooftop because it had a nice skyline. You know, I was just trying to think visually after that. That's a like, great venue. That it <laughs> you should yeah. make it yeah. like a weekly thing. But, it, but, like, it very much started as just, like, us joking around of, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, when we're all rich and famous, like, Mikhail will shoot a special for me. And then, and then he basically came and was like, well, why are we waiting? Why not just... No, we live now. in the era of no excuses. When people are talking about trying to get their foot in the door or waiting for opportunities, we all have a movie studio on our phone. If you want to make pretty professional, polished content, everybody's got the resources. It's just a matter of giving yourself a kick in the ass and going out and doing it. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, we were just, I don't know, I think we were both just getting frustrated at work. You know, I did end up quitting two months later to shoot the short film and whatnot that we discussed earlier in the podcast that had to be tabled, unfortunately. And I don't know, I was just, I was hungry and I was itching and I just wanted to get out and do our own thing. And so that, that was just kind of the impetus for that. And to be honest, the only time I ever met a comic in real life or someone told me that they were a comic, it's kind of like when someone would, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say it's completely the same equation just because soldiers obviously have a lot more responsibility <laughs> and burdens in the world. Ooh. But I do think it's uh, as artists are like, it's the most brutal I've always thought it's the most brutal editing process of going up there and you have to fucking find out live what's working and what's not working. So I've always just had so much intrinsic respect uh, for any comic. So when Lee told me that right away, I was like, oh, she must have at least a modicum of, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote balls. The flip side of that is as terrifying and as brutal as it can be to stand in front of a, a room of impassive faces. If they start to laugh, I imagine it's got to be the most addictive sensation imaginable. Yeah, there's nothing. I mean, I've yet to experience anything like it. Now, I'm not that much of a druggie, but you know, I think, yeah, when when you get like a room of people to laugh at something you've said or like a gesture, and you can feel that like, I think the best comics are people who can really like play the audience, and they just like have them in their hand. Like yeah. that's, I mean, that's such a skill that like I don't have yet. But it's when I've gotten like the taste of it. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing. There's not, all well, you want to do is learned, be able to you do flirted it with again. it a little bit in the doc. There is a little bit of interaction, which you, Lee doesn't typically go into audience interaction and things like that. It's kind of like a written set, if I'm not mistaken, Lee, no, for no. when you're when you were knocking up shows and everything. Um, and so hitting up shows, excuse me, not knocking them up. Um, <laughs> but um, she 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 was mostly like, just, you know, you're a writer, you're a good writer and you 
performed through it. But like in the in the short though, you have that one moment with your friend Bridget of you know it was Bridget's cocaine, you know. So that was it was nice seeing that. That was kind of different for you, I would say though. And I, I think you would have a pretty good energy for it since you also have your booming gregarious presence to kind of like, yeah well that's that's always my that's my goal of trying to like g- to get more and more comfortable on stage so like i'm not just going through like my set you know so it's like all right at this to get to a point where like i know my jokes so well that i can be super super present on stage like i feel like i was kind of just getting there at the beginning of this year of like I was finally doing a, f- a few more shows like regularly and it, I could, it ju- it's just so much more fun when you're not in your head of like, oh, right. And then this joke, and then I have that button and then I tag here. And then it's just like, that's so much more mechanical. So I, my goal is to get to a point yeah, where I can just like feel that much freer on stage and feel comfortable to like improv and play with the crowd and then still like not have lost my spot. You also know? as an audience member and I, I, I pride myself on being a very enthusiastic drunken comedy audience member. There's it's, <laughs> it's deliriously fun when a comedian is playing without the safety net of material, when they are just working the room. I was at the comedy cellar one night and he was not on the schedule, but they said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a surprise appearance. Please welcome to the stage, Chris Rock. And he walks up there and says, look, I've got nothing prepared but I'm hosting the BETs in a couple of weeks. I just need to kind of get loosened up and warmed up and practice some material. So I'm just going to kind of riff. And we just sat back for an hour and he would just walk around and you could see him just writing in his head. And that was fun. But the best example of somebody just working in the room and just being weird and unpredictable that I ever saw, may he rest in peace, Brody Stevens. I was at the comedy store in LA high as balls on edibles and I was drinking scotch trying to quote unquote sober up because I was so high I was feeling like (laughs) uncomfortable and then Brody (laughs) comes out and just starts walking to the crowd being completely deliriously insane and I mean I was just on on, I was was in like a little booth by myself and I was like falling over sideways and just tears streaming down my face and he was just being so strange and I I can't remember a word of it but he was just bullshitting it's like (laughs) one or two in the morning like the show the the night's over and he's just working the room and yeah I imagine when you get to that point where you can just walk out to a crowd and just be funny it's got to be a very addictive sensation. Yeah, yeah. But I think in that t- scenario, it always, it always helps when the crowd already knows who you are. Oh, yeah. Now, people were familiar with Brody Stevens' shtick because like, he's, I, yeah. prior to him committing suicide, he never achieved like the greatest heights, but he definitely had, he was like the comedian's comedian, where a lot of comedians were stealing his style of delivery and his style of material, trying to be the next Brody Stevens. Yeah, because I've seen like, not good comics like just go up even if it's just a mic and be like whatever i can wing it and then just bomb so just hard eat, eating shit you, plates yeah, of shit you can't just <laughs> wing it when you're like a 24 year old jackass like that's not where you're at yet yeah, just because well, you your guys, friends are you know, think you're funny doesn't mean a room full of new yorkers is gonna find you yes funny. yes i also i also imagine a part of it's kind of like um you, you know the documentary free, uh, solo and alex holt who climbed el capitan those face of it you know he they keep mentioning of like he's just gonna let us know when he thinks it's the day right because he's gonna feel in his body that he's just got it all fucking mapped out and it's in his muscle and it's memory muscle uh, muscle memory excuse me and so i think like you know probably as a comic too or even as any athlete like world-class athlete or comic it's just like some days you know you have that in you and you're like fuck you know like Chappelle back in the early what mid 2000s late 2000s went up and like broke the record nine hours at laugh factory in la or something mm-hmm. like there were probably some days where you're like, 
you know, even as a runner, I'm like, oh, today I feel like I could do 14 miles today. I'm going to go run 14 miles. Yeah. And I imagine it's just like you get that conditioning in you after a while. You can just play those really fucking nice, fancy games up on stage, you know? But no, my, my mom and I are close, and uh, actually I think about her mom a lot. Um, my grandmother, she was awesome, and honestly, like, such a badass. But, like, always, always kept correct, always looked amazing, like, kept it very tight. I mean that pretty literally. My grandmother got a facelift in the 50s. That's hardcore. I think they were, like, still using farm equipment then? I don't know. The point is, someone took her face off, trimmed it, and I think put the same face back on. I guess my real question is, do you guys think that Nicolas Cage could be my grandmother? <laughs> Those are the questions. We don't know. We don't know. Well, let's talk about the film. Let's talk about the shooting of it. Let's talk about where people can find it. So, Mikhail, as the director, when you're editing and shooting comedy, did you feel the need to do any finessing? Or is it better just to be like kind of a cinema verite and kind of get out of the way and just let the performance be what it is? But, yeah, just tell people just where they can find it and just your overall philosophy when it came to shooting and cutting it together. Sure. Uh, people could find it on Vimeo and uh, YouTube currently. And if you uh, search the website, uh, you just put in I'm a good friend and it should pop up. Um, and also, you know, I'm sure the show notes at the bottom, people will be able to uh, see it there. And also we have it linked to our Instagrams personally, uh, which I guess we'll give out at the end of the episode also. And uh, it's pinned to my Twitter uh, profile as well currently. So people, if they want to, they could find it in those places. Um, at the Karadimov at Twitter and um, M Karadimov at Instagram, and Lee is Lily Pads. At, yeah, at Lily Pads Instagram and it's Lee Johnson Twitter. Um. Anyway, that's where it could be found. As far as the movie, uh, we were just kind of getting since we were kind of like cobbling it together at the last minute and everything, and we were trying to get everything done very quickly, especially since the permit kind of shit out on us uh, at the last moment. And it was getting colder and colder. We we're like, fuck, we just really need to get this done. So right away, that imbued the entire production and pre-production into this DIY scrappy sort of mode where we we're just talking all day, even at work, doing at office hours and just figuring it the fuck out. Uh, and so we just kind of spun that into the movie and the People watch it like the first minute is kind of just that energy of like people are scrambling together to put on the show. Very DIY, just a bunch of friends getting together, which also goes into the theme of her being a good friend. People paying each other favors and whatnot. And it kind of stemmed from that. To be honest with you, I also watched for the first time just because Paul Thomas Anderson kept talking about it. And I just never made time for it. But Jonathan Demme's uh, uh, Stop Making Sense. Oh, hell yeah, it's great. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and that also was just like, I was like, fuck, well, you know... I don't. I don't. I shouldn't just be making movies. I should just be doing anything. And you know that PTA has been going through this. Jonathan thing, shooting Demi, everything. I mean, that's he always had the philosophy. Whether he was making a movie like Something Wild or Stop Making Sense or Sounds of the Lambs, great genre hopper, flipping back and forth between documentary and narrative, and so on and so forth. But I know this is a question that you always love when it's issued toward a director at a Q and A after screening. What kind of camera did you shoot it on? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we shot it on. Um, Two 5Ds and a 7D. Uh, the 5D in the intro, it's mostly 5D on a wider lens because I really wanted to capture the scope of New York City. And so that's why you'll see it's just a little bit bubbly on the edges, but I thought that was kind of right for the grandeur of it. And then after that, we were on a 7D and two 5Ds. The two 5Ds were on sticks, and the 7D, I was on a shoulder rig in the front, and that's the grainy footage that's mostly used in the cut. Um, we unfortunately had a miscommunication with the other camera operators and those shots aren't as uh, stable or consistent throughout. So we did have to rely on my 
shoulder rig stuff. And as you could tell, I would lose balance sometimes or push in and out. So we just, you know, it was just like, fuck, we just got to lean into it and edit it. And again, it's just this scrappy thing. You know, you even see Lee on the rooftop writing her notes. It just all kind of seems like it's coming together at the last moment, cobbled together at the last moment. And in that regard, um, you know, I, I'll rewatch anything I make and be like, oh, fuck me. You know, I could have done anything better. I could get a better camera. I wish it was less noisy at night because it's a 7D and all this shit. But for what it is and for what I was trying to throw into it and what Lee gave with her performance also, like even in the intro and in the actual standup, I just, it's there, you know, the spirit of it's there. So I'm proud that I think that comes through as a filmmaker. Do I wish it looked better and was edited better? Yeah, but I'm starting to learn how to put my themes and motifs and interests into various stories. And that was kind of cool. That kind of gave me a confidence boost. And that gave us both, I think, a confidence boost to try to do the short film afterwards. Uh, but Lee, uh, Lee, I don't know. I don't know Lee's end of it because Lee was writing this material to like the fucking the like, last second. <laughs> well, last Lee, second. knowing that it was going to be a movie, did you think it's better to perform for the camera or is it better to really play to the crowd and make eye contact to make that connection? Uh, I feel like I actively tried to not look at the camera because uh, that even though I don't know, I kind of went back and forth thinking like, oh, maybe it would have been like cute if I because th there were moments where like Mikhail is crouched down like two feet from me and like I can like see feel, like see his body shaking. But I was like, I'll just keep on going. With yeah, my core, dude, that. my core was just like <laughs> fucking shot during the second run through. <laughs> yeah, but I like generally even even with this and whenever I perform like I'm pretty cool until about 25 seconds before I go on stage. So like, because I was also a producer on the special, like on the day, you know, I was taking time to write and like f finish up my set, but I was also dealing with like helping the crew and, you know, paying off the door guy to not kick us out of the roof and like, you know, getting all, you know, a lot of the audience yeah, I wish was I got my camera. Uh, yeah, that would your been mom fun. handing the twenty dollar bill over like a shot at a casino <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, basically, it looked when we had it all set up, uh, it looked like honestly someone was getting married because we had this like beautiful little trellis and like all a, these chairs. Okay, called. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and and Hector, the door guy, was like, "What are you guys doing?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, we're just like having a little party. That's cool, right?" Um, but so it's, so it's not until like right before I'm about to go on stage that I'm like, oh shit, I'm right, I forgot. I'm really nervous. Um, what, do you so do I, to get, what do you do to get rid of the willies? Because I've seen some backstage uh, footage where comedians will have a, like their friends around and they'll just start talking all kinds of shit to each other just to kind of get their blood up and really get animated. And I've seen other people just will rip a giant bong hit and just jump off the cliff. So do you have like a, a pre-performance <laughs> ritual to kind of help you get in the, uh, the, get in the zone? Um, I definitely have to go to the bathroom because the thought of feeling like I need to pee on stage would drive me insane. Uh, I tend to have like half a drink because I've, de I've definitely done mics like a bit too drunk. Uh, I don't really ever want to get like that on stage, but I don't know. I, I kind of go like inward. Like I feel like I'll, I'll have a drink and then I'll like really just sit with the notes that I've made and I'll just be like, all right, like, you know, this, you know, this, and I'll, I'll run through it one last time. And then kind of once it starts, there's no turning back. It's kind of like in the short film, it is kind of just Zen. She just like goes off and, uh, I don't remember if we use the shot. There's like one really wide shot where you see her like on a, just sort of like an abutment across the way in the wide shot. And she, she does. Cause I remember the first time I went to see you, I just saw you at the bar and you just like sneak back out and walk up and down the hallway. And you were just yeah. like, 
back and forth like a cage the wolf or something. Yeah, I, I, I definitely pace a little bit and have to like not. I I generally don't watch the person who went on like right before me because I don't like I I generally don't do a lot of crowd work. I mean, only if someone if it's like a heckle or something like that. Like how do you deal I, with hecklers? Because I've seen a variety oh, of approaches. Not well, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember seeing uh, Charlie Murphy being interviewed by Joe Rogan, and Charlie Murphy was saying that he was amazed by Joe Rogan's ability. She says, "He's man, when you get a heckler, you just evaporate him, you obliterate him." Like he would just—he yeah. was bl- like some people, some comedians just annihilate the hecklers, and other people will in a kind of a like a dance. They'll make them part of the show and slowly but surely kind of shine a spotlight on that person, start ridiculing them. I guess it was um, oh uh, Ari Shafir. I saw him at the Comedy Cellar. And there were some drunk, and it was late. It was one of those like weird, like one one a.m. shows. And there were some people in there that were just hammered, who just would not shut up. But instead of just destroying them, Ari would like set traps for them and let them say stupid things so that uh, people would all be laughing at their expense. Yeah, I I'm not much of a roaster yet, so I tend to. I, I probably, I like engage. I'll just answer whatever question they've yelled at me, like, and it kind of. It's not good. I'll like engage them for conversation for like twenty seconds, and then I'll just move on with like. You gotta practice out. on Mikhail. It's like Mikhail, come over here and be yeah. my pitching bag for an hour or two, and uh, just abuse them roundly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, luckily, it would, I, no, it would it would subvert the entire director like power dynamic. <laughs> I don't know if I'd like that. Oh well, then let's definitely do that. Uh. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about how you balance your producing duties versus performing mm-hmm. duties. Because obviously, prior to COVID, you and Mikhail had been prepping for a big crowdfunding campaign on a, on a short film. I remember Adam Rakoff and I spoke to you and Brittany about some of y'all's plans and some of the some of the things that we had learned from some of the crowdfunding campaigns we've been a part of. But I guess when you're dividing your energies. Would you like five, ten years from now? Would you rather be like a kick-ass producer making kick-ass independent films here in New York, or would you rather be a full-blown, like, fully operational stand-up? Because I, I always worry, I guess, sometimes if you if you're not all in, perhaps like you're not getting as much practice. But what is your overall philosophy to balancing those two roles? Yeah, it's it was definitely tough at the beginning of the year because there was so much prep to do for the short, and I and I think I did definitely perform less in like January and February, but I really did want to, I did want to give the short, like everything I had. I, I think ultimately I would, pro- if I like gun to my head, I would probably choose film over comedy. Cause that was sort of like my first love. That's what I went to school for. Um, that's sort of always in my mind what I wanted to do. And then sort of when I got on the, like the TV track, I was, I just thought, well, you know, I guess I'll just do this for a bit. And then comedy became this like other passion that I really felt that like, all right, yeah, like I'm good at this. Like strangers are telling me I'm good at this. Like that's a feeling I don't have all the time. And that's like something that I really sought out. Um, so right now, I mean, I'm, tr- I'm trying to balance it because I really do love both. I think the good thing about comedy now is that like, yeah, of course, there's no substitute for, like, performing live in a club, but there are tons of ways to, like, make comedy content and, like, get mm-hmm. your comedy out there. So I think, like, down the line, I might move in, like, more of where it's, like, not I'm not just live performing all the time. I'm also, like, writing and producing sketches and other things like that to kind of, like, meld the skill sets a bit more because um, the, the grind of 
the live shows is just so, so tough. And like being a traveling comic, like, I don't know if that's something I want for my future. I just kind of always want it to be there somehow. Yeah. It seems like comedians right now, at least are definitely trying to balance. Like, is it better to work, like hit the road and go to Arizona and Florida and places where I can perform? Or is it better just to have a kick-ass comedy podcast where I just do weird, just act like a, like a maniac in my own home and record little sketches. And I, I think the key is always just to remain as active and as busy and get as much practice as possible. But I guess Mikhail knocking the ball back to you, does it hurt? a little bit that the short that you'd put so much time and energy into prepping with Lee and Brittany this past spring that it didn't materialize because I've, I remember it was y'all were like a day from launching a Kickstarter campaign right when the city started shutting well, down. Well, we were two days. And, yeah. And we were going back shooting. and forth and you were going to be like shooting and crowdfunding all at once. And then slowly but surely your crew kind of started to evaporate and disappear because they were, a lot of them were students and they were going to be worried. So yeah. you and I recorded like four weeks before that, this like two hour conversation about some of your favorite movies and how they inspired your, I mean, it's this giant conversation. So is there anything you want to say about that lost project now that we have an episode that will be going, <laughs> will be going I, I was sitting on that episode waiting for your crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, to go live. I know. Um, the say la vie, my man, say la vie. <laughs> uh, I will hopefully look back at it fondly as a thing that like, Oh yeah, there was this little short I never got to shoot, but look at my career now. I hope it's not like 20 years from now. I've only shot two more things from this point, And I look back at me like, man, I still could have shot that short film. No, like I hope that because I currently am fine. We're so busy that it's like the documentary was that right. I was feeling that void. I was just writing all summer, um, you know, almost done with two scripts now. But it is a very solitary thing to do writing. And so I just and I was upstate for a while, just isolated, kind of like cabin in the woods and whatnot. And so just being able to come back to the city and hit the ground running with Lee to shoot the documentary and everything, that kind of filled the void that I was feeling from not having done the short film, you know? <clears throat> also, to have a short film, like, I wasn't the only one who had a short film closed. It had nothing to do with me, Lee, or Brittany. It had nothing to do with us not getting the thing together. It was a international fucking crisis, right? There, what, what could we do, right? So there's only so much head bashing you can do, so... We moved on fairly quickly, I would say. I think so. And I think also, like, we we already, like, learned so much, like, just so from much those months of pre-production. So much pre-production now, yeah. Yeah, because it was already going to be, like, I, I think, like, the biggest budget, like, the biggest thing you had shot, Mikhail. So yeah. it's, like, yeah, just that prep of, like, getting everything ready. I mean, it, it was it was a heartbreak. We our, our first shoot day was supposed to be March 13th. And the city shut down two days later. So it was, you know, it was really, it was a very tough. We had a long, long night I at mean, a my bar. My heart does ache right now. Actually, talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes these old breakups they just come back on you all of a sudden. Yeah, but also like you know our, and we were just talking about like our lead actress who we still wish we want to do something with. Um, and you know we were all sort of like collectively mourning, but now at least it's like. All right, well, for the next one, like, we'll have, you know, all these lessons that we learned, even though we didn't get to actually shoot it. That's what people always say that every film you make, no matter what the size, people say, oh my God, I learned so much. And uh, yeah, the next movie, it's, it's all going to be so easy. We learned so much this time around. <laughs> But you kind of learn all the lessons about how to fight one war just in time for the next war where there's a totally different oh, yeah. landscape and new set of rules. Oh, yeah. And every, like everything you learned is useful, but yeah. it's a totally new landscape. And also, as your ambition climbs, 
you encounter new problems that you've never encountered before. So, yeah, but it is funny how everybody at the end of every movie is always like, oh, well, the next one's going to be different. We're going to, you know, we're going to solve all these problems. And uh, it just is a whole new set of problems to contend with. Like you were saying earlier, though, man, it's a fucking problem, though, if. If you if you don't have that fear going into a movie, I don't know. My 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 barometer is shit. Is this scaring me to do? Am I nauseous a week out from doing this? It's like good. That means your body's reacting. Your body's reacting because you know it's scary and it's exciting and it's gonna push it forward. If it's something I was comfortable with, I don't know if I'd want to fucking do it to be honest with you because that's no kind of motivation for me. Like I need my uh, I need my anxiety. I need my antidepressants to push me along and like do something nowadays. So. If it didn't have that, and this was one of those things that did have that for me. A, I'm terrified of fucking heights for the rooftop special, so I did not want to be on a rooftop particularly all day fucking long shooting this thing. Um, And uh, it was nervous also, like, shooting something live, you know? Like, Lee's more used to the idea of shooting something live. And a lot of them were familiar faces to an extent with her. Well, so I know a lot of comedy specials, they'll shoot it over like seven or eight different sessions in the same place yeah. and they'll kind of cut it together. I mean, when I saw Seinfeld, he was saying, this might go in the, the Netflix special. It might not. Like, I, I really don't know. But it, they get that yeah. opportunity to try again and again and again. Did y'all just have one pass through all the material? We did it twice. Okay, Two. gotcha. Um, but because... Twice, yeah, twice in a row. So we basically we were able to get enough audience there that we were able to like swap out people. So not everyone saw me do like the same set twice. And then which, which version made you happier? Did you get loose and then crush, or did it get stale the second time around? The second time it was definitely better um, because I I made the mistake of because we were so so focused on like the shooting part. I sort of forgot like a little bit of the stand up part and making sure that like most of the time whenever you perform or like if you're a headliner there'll be a feature before you to like warm up the crowd uh i forgot about needing that so absolutely going in, so going into that first we crowd did, we should told mikhail to, to do like a little uh, a little there. ukrainian dance of some kind so mikhail yeah, get up there and warm up the crowd yeah <laughs> that's true we did, i mean we did ask I, I made, Molly. I made the audience who, giggle a couple of times once they got drunker that's about yeah, it yeah, yeah yeah no we did but it was th- that first crowd was a little because you know, as often, like when you're shooting, you end up having to wait for a little bit. So we were waiting for the sun to go down and the audience was just sitting there for a good half hour. And we were just giving them updates of like, going to start soon, just waiting for it to be like fully night. We at we, our friend of ours who also worked with us at this production company was, you know, she spent uh, some of the day with us as a PA and she's also a comic. And we were like, hey, Molly, do you want to like, would you want to do a little time? Like just to kind of keep the audience occupied. And she said no. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which... <laughs> the big, big Well, I, mean, I think she also was just like so – she probably had like a couple of slices of pizza, beer at that point. All she had to do was hold a monitor for one of our operators. So she probably was just like at the opposite end of in the zone too, like yeah. up there. And yeah. also in conditions that she's never performed in outside, you know, yeah. like how's laughter going to carry and shit like that. Well, so uh, basically so I, I warmed up myself. <laughs> yeah, she warmed up herself. Uh, I, I even <laughs> laughed. I laughed the second go around. And they're like some camera shutters in those. Well, moments. also having someone warm up the audience, it can backfire because what if they kill? And then you get yeah. around, oh shit, <laughs> that person was really fucking funny. Like now, now I gotta up my game. But it's yeah. a weird thing. You you want them to do, you but want them to warm up good. the audience, but you don't want them to to murder the audience. And I've seen I've seen warm up acts 
go both ways. I've seen some like when the guy who warmed up for uh, Seinfeld didn't make me laugh once. I was like, all right, well, that's that's a problem. Like, he's killing the vibe of the room. And then other times you have like you know Joey Diaz is the most famous murderer out there where he will do so well opening up for other people. He kind of sabotages whoever's coming after him. So you kind of it seems like once a comedian finds someone that they like, they travel with that person for quite some time because they 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 strike that perfect tone. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So yeah, that that was just. I like, mean, unfortunately, we didn't have any of that. Yeah. yeah, we didn't have the perfect feature for me. Um, but that was just like one of those things where it was such, you know, it was just the three of us putting that all together. So something was gonna. Well, slip and through on, the cracks. on my part, I I, I had a, direct, a directorial sort of uh, faux pas in two regards. One, even though I knew we were only doing this twice and had two takes, I said, Lee, you know what? I was such a fucking pretentious asshat. I so, you know what, Lee? to believe that under any. <laughs> It's like Lee, you know what? Do me a favor. For each set, oh yeah, surprise the camera once. <laughs> no, 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 no. He didn't say camera. He said surprise me. Surprise me. Surprise me. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm helping produce this. Also, I still haven't finished writing. Right now. <laughs> I also have to finish writing. Oh, also, I I literally had a note that said surprise Mikhail question mark. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it makes me feel like such shit just thinking back. <laughs> one moment I wanted to have like a, a moment since like Brittany legit had to leave halfway through the first set. And so I was like, oh, let's build that into this set because it's about everyone doing favors for each other. And like, oh, this producer has to fucking bail halfway through. So how about like Lee, you point out, it's like, oh, great. Even my producer of the doc can't fucking stay because I'm bombing so hard. Woo, it did not play. And also... <laughs> No comic warm-up. Lee's been doing her set only for like a cool minute and a half out of 12. And right away, boom, we have this little stupid written section. Yeah, yeah you know what? Get both the performances from both these people that seems real. You know what doesn't work? Planned spontaneity. <laughs> like... <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, but, that but also was... like being a comedian and being a director are like two different instincts comedians are trying to do the best performance that they possibly can but a director is trying to be like a lion tamer an engineer possible chaos or something because they just want great stuff to cut with great stuff to edit with but you're up there you know without a safety net doing your thing and so you get kind of warring impulses in terms of what's best for the movie versus what's best for that particular evening of performance yeah i i did definitely like toward when it was getting like close to we were gonna start like i i do think i kind of like went to mikhail and i was like all right i need to go like be by myself for 20 minutes like if you need me for something going on with the crew like let me know but i can't i did have to like detach a little bit from that side of it just to be like oh right Lee, you're performing and maybe you should uh finish writing that old set <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about this documentary you're making, uh, you know, comedy during the time of COVID. It almost sounds like a, like a Polish joke, but uh, it's obviously uh, we live in a very strange period. So tell us, t Mikhail, tell me a little bit about this upcoming project that you're cutting together. I'm very happy you called it that it's, so it sounds like it's Polish. I'm hoping it has like a more of a Polish like docu documentary uh, vibe to it. So that's cool. Uh, what happened? Lee uh, and I were getting antsy again, and we were like, hey, let's shoot another special. Lee's like, fuck you, I haven't performed in a year. And I was like, all right, pivot time. <laughs> uh, so Lee and Brittany went to a couple of live shows to do just early testing to see how these things were getting done so we could shoot ours and be more prepared and be like, all right, how do they fuck up? How can we do better, et cetera, et cetera, learn from others' mistakes. And then they came back to me. A, Lee was like, no, hasn't been a year. I'd rather write for a bit and go back up there before that happens. And I was like, okay, cool. 
let's just do this. Let's just do this doc, right? And then it started slowly but surely. We just went to a couple of shows, picked a couple of interviews, and then just started following the story. And then we started making scenes happen, you know? And then we started kind of, like, bullshitting together and just bouncing ideas off of one another and be like, oh, this would be a cool abstract scene or a verite scene to go along with all this fucking talking. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, Lee and I, I would say we both kind of, like, I won't speak for Lee, but I just know her story because we're friends. Um, not to spoil it for anyone, but, uh, yeah, so I grew up on Comedy Central, you know, Friday nights, I would just be watching those, like, half-hour specials that they had back-to-back, starting at 8 up until 11 o'clock at night, you know, I remember when Nick Swartzen was just, like, fucking 20 years old and looked prepubescent in his plaid shirt, or Ted Alexandro. He he is aged like like an egg. (laughs) But uh, Ted Alexandro, you know, Daryl Hammond, like, doing a half-hour set, there were just all these half-hour sets, and you just saw this huge multitude of comics, and I thought it was just, like, the best fucking thing. And so, you know, I kind of slipped off over time, but when Lee and I met, and I found out she was a comic, we just started talking about it more. She started telling me to watch more comics, like, uh, her favorite's Mulaney. Um, She told me to, like, watch Kid Gorgeous and get into that. And so, slowly but surely, I don't know, we started talking, we loved comics, and we're like, this is perfect for us. Lee kind of felt hungry for the comedy world again since we're like shit i haven't been up might as well do this this just marries both our worlds you know film and comedy and then we just went from there right yeah pretty much i mean it was like yeah i had sort of you know because i obviously like know many many comedians i had sort of been watching as the quarantine was unfolding like that people were promoting these zoom shows and some out like this is even like June when outdoor shows were sort of just starting and people were sort of just seeing if it could work at all and if anyone would be interested in it. Obviously, like in New York, a ton of people just straight up left the city um, just to get out of the quarantine. So it was, you know, and I think rightfully so, people were like, all right, I'm going to like take care of myself and like then do comedy. But like, I think for any art form and for comedy specifically, like it's so because you do it so often and it is such a crazy rush of validation like for that to be taken away is like so brutal and so many people we talked to were like yeah well comedy is also like kind of my therapy like this is how i work out what's going on comedians are pretty damaged people and they oh yeah that's how they kind of process all their issues (laughs) is talking about them in front of other people which is such a joy um but but yeah so then when you know i i just did not and i really kind of you know receded a bit in quarantine so i was like yeah i don't know like if i'm ready to get back out there yet i haven't really done i haven't done any of these zoom shows or anything but then we kind of just and then i started talking to other people i knew from the scene of just like well what are you guys doing right now like what are you feeling right now what is even happening with the clubs? Because like in New York, there's still very much that old school structure of like, all right, you get you get your reps in at the mics, and then you get some bar shows. Then maybe you get like a spot at Caroline's or Gotham or New York Comedy Club. Then maybe the Booker sees you. Then you get a late night, and like there's this very kind of like old school ladder of how you kind of rise up in comedy. And even before this, that was already, I think, trying to change with people like Bo Burnham and now like Sarah Cooper this year, like all these people who found different avenues to become just as successful as like a great club comic. Um, So I just love the idea of like what what happens to comedy when there are no clubs like the clubs are gone. They will be gone, I think, easily into next year because 
there, as we talk about in the doc, we've talked to a couple club owners. They're just not getting any guidance. One second, one second. I just what? like, you know, we're, we're, we're just halfway through post, so I just want to kind of like, I'm sorry, I'm going to be really paranoid. Just a little close to the chest about like themes oh, and, okay. I'm sorry. and stuff like that. Also, it's just such a topical <laughs> thing. And I'm sorry, Jamie, it's just I saw it in the New York Times vulture. I just know that more and more people are like going to these things and shooting. I just don't want, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to get paranoid. People here are, are insights as to how we're structuring things. And I just want, sorry. I'm just a little paranoid about right. that. No, no, no. Yeah. I was just, I was just going off. But yeah, so that basically that's how we started. Of just like, what is happening? Like in, we want know, to see if the system's gonna go kablooey or not, and we're yeah. just kind of witnessing whether or not that's the case. That's, yeah, and oh, and, yeah. and, and <laughs> entering quarantine, like it's you yeah. know, I mean, you we you could have had this question about like what happens to a band that they can't perform anymore or Broadway or what an happens act, to know, a stripper if there's no strip clubs. I mean, it's like in New York. I mean, it was a very easy topic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was, that was the first thing. It was just like, first we're like, let's just get something out because for Lee and I, since we work in reality TV and already have that as kind of our resume, we were hoping to use this as kind of a pivot to go just into more documentary sort of stuff of, you know, we're producing it, we're story producing it together, directing it, whatever. And so I do want it to be a really nice, tight little uh, film. Memory. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> just, real quick. Oh, excuse me. I got it. I got okay. it. So we were talking like at first it was just like, let's quickly just get this done. But it's just if there's going to be so many just because we saw these articles, too. A lot of them are just small. Like this is just happening. People are going outside. We do. We we're looking at it kind of like systemically, talking about the system of comedy and all that shit and how it might change, but also with other stuff. So I just also, I, the I subject's know, I evolving to... as you're shooting it. I imagine the subject is in For a different sure, place yeah. than when it you started, more which really forces you to be very limber in your approach. And so I just I just know like we don't want to be like those short articles about like hey they did this outside. We do have a very specific point of view, and that's kind of the goal of like yes, you can do this with any subject. But can you do it with your voice so that it actually sticks out? Because everyone's going to be doing exercising Corona. What are gyms like today? You know, like it has to be your voice, though, your concerns, your neuroses. And so that's been the goal. And that's also why I guess I've been close to the chest of like, well, don't tell him the sauce, you know, like what's, yeah, in the yeah, sauce? Yeah. what's the goal in terms of sharing it? First things first is festivals. Uh, just because we are trying to make it like a capsuled short film, kind of like give me shelter of like. I don't, it's not supposed to be evergreen. We're talking about Corona. It's very obvious when it's taking place. So first I want to go through the festival circuit. And then after that, try to sell it to people if they want to cut it up a little bit for online content and stuff like that. But online publication, most likely. Try to sell it back just to get money back, to be honest with you. Gotcha. Uh, well, I don't know and why people, this popped into my head, but earlier you mentioned that both of y'all liked uh, John Mulaney. The one time I saw John Mulaney, he had this great bit, which made more sense after I'd been in New York for a while. But he's talking about how he was uh, working the clubs in Manhattan and was heading back to Brooklyn. And as y'all are well aware, sometimes the subway doesn't necessarily come at the exact time that you want it to. So as he's walking toward the platform, he doesn't hear or see anything, but there's a person in front of him walking, and that person starts to kind of speed up. So Mulaney thinks that person must be hearing an incoming train. So he starts speeding up, and the person in front mm -hmm. of him like goes into a complete panic and starts like hauling ass away from him. So he's oh, it must be really close. So he starts sprinting after her. Finally, he realizes she thinks he's like trying to kill her, and he's making a kind of mad dash trying to chase her down. <laughs> so anyway, it was like a, a, constant, yeah, yeah. a, a classic example of uh, miscommunication. So you got to be careful about how you uh, you know conduct yourself when you're trying to catch those late night trains back to Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean that's that's it. Oh, yeah, yes. Sorry, Lee. Oh, I was say it was just so much fun for me also just starting this project this summer because I really had like, 
you know, everyone went through quarantine in their own way. And I'm sure many people were, you know, depressed in their own way. And like, I really did like, it was so nice just to like, it was such a perfect, not excuse. Cause that seems like not the right word, but like, it yeah, was such a great, like, <laughs> yeah, it's not enough. no, it was just such a great avenue for me to like get back into comedy. Cause I, since then I have like gotten to do a couple outdoor shows and some zoom shows and stuff like that. So like, it was the perfect vehicle for me to be like, honestly, it, it is the great way to like combine the two things that I love so much right now. And so it was like earlier in the summer when I couldn't even imagine like going outside, like all I needed to do was to like shoot one of these shows that we did. And I was like, Oh, right. Like I'm back. This is why I love this is like getting to see like the comedians that are my friends and like seeing them out there hustling. It was like, it was very sort of invigorating for me. Yeah. Filmmakers, comedians, performers, content creators, they got to practice their craft. They have to, they have to put stuff out there. One of the most fun things I've done all year was when I got together with some friends over a couple of days and shot a short film and just to be out on the streets again with a couple of people doing something productive and physically demanding. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh yeah, like New York's a really cool city. Like sitting in my apartment all day, every day is not a healthy way to live. And uh, that, that way lies madness and suicide. So I get to go to like my gym now, but we really have to, I think just make like that much more of an effort to make sure that we're not just like surrendering to self pity or surrendering just to the monotony of like the day to day kind of hiding out experience. So yeah, I, I totally get it where once you I'll, actually start getting back into away. creating content again, it's just incredibly invigorating and exciting. I'll sure. give away one thing that's a lot of the comics say in the doc and it's a really good thread and it's just a good, since we're all talking about Corona and since the doc is again about comedy, but it's also about New York city and Corona, New York city is very much a character and the title is Back at It, how we're just all coming back at it. We're all back at our grooves. We're all coming back to work. And that's the thing, though, man. Like, And this is just like to any filmmakers or any artists who are like listening to this, whoever, whoever that may be, just now is the time to work because now's the time where a lot of people aren't working or they're just giving themselves an excuse not to work. And if you work right now, it's just going to be a little bit quieter for a little bit longer, but people will remember that you put something out when it was really difficult to put something out. Yep. You know, if it clicks, people remember it all the fucking more. So my biggest advice is if you've been sitting around, yeah, I'm going to guilt you a little bit. Get the fuck up and go fucking do something because it's just easier to get remembered right now. It's kind of like there's been a drought and the ocean's kind of shrunk into a pond and the fish that are still fucking swimming, well, they're still fucking swimming. Um, also, yeah. I've got some years on both of y'all, and I recognize that we have a finite lifespan with which to work, and I might get hit by a bus tomorrow, so I'm not going to sure. sit around for like my li- what limited time I've left worrying about fucking COVID. I want I want to make some goddamn movies. I want to make some podcasts. I want to make some YouTube videos. I want I want I want to, you know, li- life is for the living. And this period, what's funny is I always think about how like if you're a child now. Some people are going to look back and this is like the most like exciting time of their lives because when, when you're young, no matter what era in which you find yourself as a young person, you're always going to be nostalgic for. So no matter how grim we might find COVID to be, there's some 19-year-old out there right now who's going to look back on 2020 like, dude, 2020 fucking ruled. We were partying. I went to college and blah, blah, blah. And so I always try to look at things in a positive light. But let's talk a little bit about some of the comedians y'all well, love. Can I say actually something to your point because oh, you sure. brought up something interesting and this might come off boastful but i don't fucking mind i i I feel more confident after this year creatively to be honest with you and it's just i just you know fincher's one of my favorites lee and i actually just re-marathon like three of his movies in one day (laughs) i've got tickets uh, for me next friday oh nice uh uh, where are you seeing it 
Uh, some some shithole over in Jersey City. <laughs> okay, oh. so it's far away. Never yeah, because the, you know theaters in fucking New York. Jersey City's not crazy. far away. Yeah, I just I, I just it drives me crazy that I can't go to the movies uh, I was in New this York. Though, so. I, uh, is, is Westchester? Yeah, you're I, not I thought Westchester was back. Well, I, I'm sorry. What did you say? I thought movie theaters in Westchester were open. I guess not. Uh, I don't know if that's closer or not. Because like no, this this theater that I'm going to, I think it's like 45 minutes total door to door, which obviously is. Not, I mean, it's funny. It's like 45 minutes to like the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. But yeah, whatever, no big deal. There's something psychologically about having to go to another state that just makes it yeah. feel more annoying. Like I would have no well, problem whatsoever going to Brooklyn to watch a movie. But um, yeah, I'm just I'm just ready for I'm ready for movies to come back to the city. Um, all right, I use the wrong word. Not boastful. My point about David Fincher is that I think after David Fincher, me personally, I love all his movies right after 9-11. I think it did something that like how he was working. It was just a subject matter. It wasn't, it's not a straight subject matter in his works, but it is definitely all his movies. You look at them are post 9-11 ingrained. I think it did something to his creativity that if he finally found a gear for it. This is a very, 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 very privileged thing to say because I've been fucking very, very, very blessed in my year and that I had enough money saved up that I could get through the year and work on creative stuff like my two scripts and this doc. I'm very blessed in that and that I had a very good net that helped me out with that. That being said, I think that all this shit has done something to me creatively also that I could even see in my scripts. I could even see in the way I'm thinking about this doc that is just really fucking rejuvenating and so to your point also, people kind of should think about that. This is a huge cataclysmic thing that's akin to 9-11 that it's going to shape the rest of the world. Uh, and so for you, for people to also make work and ignore it is insane too, I find. So I, you know, back to my- Yeah, I mean, the short that I made, it totally embraces it because the hero of the story wears a mask because he's like a, a ninja hobo character, but everybody else in the movie is wearing one as well. So we just embrace it, acknowledge it, we, and we gave the villains kind of cool face masks and things like that. But we didn't try to pretend as if this is not happening because we were shooting around New York where everybody's wearing masks. So uh, we just made it a part of the story. Yeah, you yeah. have to. Because I remember, Lee, remember we had this conversation earlier when we started talking about the feature and everything. I'm like- a month into Corona, I started talking to her and Brittany, and I was just like, I really think I need to pivot the script. I really think it's going to be really weird that I don't mention anything and I shoot this after Corona's over. Because a year from now, there probably will still be a lot of people still wearing masks. Even if it's even if it's a vaccine, Absolutely. even if the thing's Def passed, definitely. It will, it'll be like when you visit some countries like in Far East Asia where people just, if they have a cold, they wear a mask as a courtesy to other people so they don't spread it. I think the masks are here to stay even after COVID is gone. Well, it's like a sci-fi movie, right? You just have it as kind of like a background mise-en-scene, especially Blade Runner. It's like, this is just the world, right? Yep. This is just a slightly off thing about this world because it's the future. It's just all movies are going to look like that to a certain yeah. extent. Well, who anyway. are some comedians that y'all feel have bloomed during these, this crazy time? Because now's the time to pivot and give some shout-outs to some of the comedians and filmmakers that you love. But I feel like some comedians have remained incredibly active through, as you mentioned, Zoom sessions or through just doing their podcasts. I mean, like Bill Burr, he's a very successful comedian and does a lot of acting, but he still does a regular podcast where he just gets on the on his, uh, on his mic and just rants about sports and talks about his wife and kids and things like that. So, uh, Leah, I'll knock the ball back to you. Are there any examples you would point to right now? Like that person really took advantage of this time to redouble their efforts and really get their comedy out there. Um, I mean, I, ooh, who would I say? I mean, a lot of people have talked about Sarah Cooper this year. Um, so she just got a Netflix special and basically got famous during quarantine doing these like lip sync TikToks of Trump. 
uh, <laughs> she would just like go over like his speeches or any, you know, any of the wild shit that he says all the time. Um, and, and I, I know what's funny about comedy though, is that like, I knew some, so she, she had this crazy TikTok following. And then I think just last month she shot and then, uh, released a Netflix special that's kind yeah. of it's not a straight stand-up special it's a bit more like sketches and she has my Rudolph is in it and there are a bunch of other sort of like bigger names to sort of like I don't want to say help her with it but just sort of add to it um but I still know comedians who are like roll her eyes their eyes at Sarah Cooper because like she didn't you know go through the traditional club system oh, they think and she, she need to climb like, the ranks and follow the established paths that have been yeah. carved I mean, by the it's, predecessors it's the same thing that like Mark Marin did to Bo Burnham a couple years yeah. ago when he was a guest on his show where like Bo Burnham came up through YouTube and like putting out these very funny songs and then kind of went up from there and Mark Marin was just like oh but you've never like done the comedy store and all these shitty clubs and well hit the original beef started in the green room that show that weird yeah, sorry, that yeah. showtime or whatever yeah with the judd apatow yeah, I mean, and, every uh, decade is going to have a different <laughs> ladder to climb and the way you yeah. climb the ladder back in the 60s is quite different from the 70s and each decade and so on and so forth and i feel like there's no better way to sound like a bitter old bastard than when you start acting as if everybody after you has to take the same path you did because the technology over the last 10 years it's been a complete and total sea change. And for me as a, as a consumer of comedy, I think on the whole this technology has made comedy as a genre, at least when it comes to stand-up, stronger. I think comedy movies are weaker than ever, but I can't think of a time mm -hmm. where there's been more comedians that I'm aware of that I'm excited to go buy tickets to see than right now. And I think technology has played a massive part of all that. Yeah, and I think there just there are just so many ways to do a special. Like what like one of my favorites that I was hoping to talk about today was Maria Bamford's uh, the she's special genius. special special fucking certifiable insane person, but a, an yeah. absolute genius. Yeah, but it's like you could look at th that special where it's just her in her living room, like with mm -hmm. her two parents, and it's like that that could be a special that you could make right now because it's like in your bubble, yeah. you're in your living room, like. You know, I mean, and, Lee, and not to toot our own hearts, but like that was because that was the germ of our shit, like about when we first were thinking columns, McGorlick Park, and then your rooftop of like, why does that have to be on the stage? Why do we have to pay anyone to like get a venue or anything when we could yeah. kind of just fucking do it this what way? What about comedy albums? I feel like comedy albums, like when I was in college in the 90s, Adam Sandler just put out these albums that were just like songs and him being silly, and it was just, it was sketches, but it was just pure audio. Is that a viable outlet now or do people not really do comedy because i feel like that was like a big thing from like the 50s through the 90s people would just put out a record or a cd of just just their comedy and i've got a few maria bamford albums from the early 2000s where she just kills yeah i think it's i think there still are but i i don't know i feel like they're less important because podcasts are sort of maybe an easier more consistent mm -hmm. way for comedians to get out there like i there's a there's a guy I know, his name is Jay Jordan, who's like a super, super funny New York comic, and he's like been rising through the ranks pretty steadily over the past couple of years. And I was actually at his album taping last fall at New York Comedy Club, and I know he released it. I know you know it spent a couple weeks like high on iTunes, but then I don't know how much it's really done for him, other than it's always great when you can just like have something that you can use as a credit. So it's like yeah. he got a, he got on the Tonight Show and then he got the album out. So it's just like it's just more to like bolster the resume. But I don't know if anyone, if you just had a comedy album, is that going to make you like cross over and be successful? I'm going to say probably not because I don't think 
people younger than us are listening to just gotcha. comedy albums. Another thing that young people younger than us aren't doing, they're not watching The Tonight Show for comedy specials. I remember nope. in the 80s and 90s as a also, kid, late night TV, I discovered tons of comedians through them appearing on th- Throw a Rock at any uh, of any of the, uh, the big talk show hosts of that period. I can't, I don't think I've discovered a new comedian through a talk show host in like 20 years, but I discover them through Netflix. Like Netflix, I feel like they have become the ultimate friend of comedians. It's like not a week goes by where they don't have a new hour-long special by some badass on, on Netflix, and I feel like they've just gone all in on the comedy game in ways that like HBO and Comedy Central used to. Well, they're also yeah. even giving like smaller ones. Like they they did the whole what was it comedians of the world where everyone got like a half hour. They've even mm-hmm. done shorter. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but they've done ones where it's just fifteen minute sets. So it's like, yeah, you don't need your full hour or forty five minutes of material if you have like a tight twenty minutes. You can still get on and people can still see your jokes. Well, and that's it's a change, you know, as far as like. Taking back to the filming aspect of it, it's a change in expectations of the medium also how long content needs to be anymore, right? So why fucking make an hour-long stand-up? Why blow so much money when you don't even know if that thing's going to fucking land? And it's an hour of comedy you have to fucking keep people giggling with. So just why not Why not while practicing, like, you know, you do open mics, five-minute sets here, five-minute sets there, and you build your hour long, and then you go shoot. Why not also learn that extra elbow, uh, that extra trick, rather, of, like, well, how do I do this in front of a camera? Let me go do it for five minutes in front of the camera. Let me do 15 minutes in front of the camera. You know, one of my favorite specials is, uh, you know, Zach Galifianakis's Live at the Purple Onion, which is on Netflix currently. It's a little over an hour. But if you watch it, it's kind of like, you know, Lee and I had this conversation before our special. Just like, I still want it to be a short film. I'm directing it. I still want it to feel like a kind of a short film in itself. And I could call it a short film. And so I feel that way with Purple Onion and that he has his live stand up, but then he has these weird interactions with the audience where he's pretend- maybe pretending to be drunker than he is and lying on the ground and pushing out his gut. And all of that <laughs> just seemed so. You remember it? Do you remember that? Uh, I saw it a long time ago, yeah. Well, now that we're reaching sort of the end of the episode, let's just do some shout outs for whether it's a 10 minute set or an hour set. What are the all time favorites for y'all? when it comes to comedy that you have seen live? Because like for me, in recent years, the one bit that I can remember where I quite literally was like kicking in fury the wall in front of me was when I saw Joey Diaz. And you know, Joey Diaz has a certain, let's just say, a certain kind of audience that's a little more rough and rowdy than your typical audience. And they were, they were ready to get weird, and they were ready to get nasty, and he did not disappoint. It was one of the filthiest shows I've ever heard. But, I mean, I was... My, my face was in agony. I was having to rub my cheeks to try to like uh, un- get rid of the cramps. He just slaughtered each and every mm-hmm. single person in that room. I can't remember the name of the theater. So it was like a, one of the kind of like B grade or C grade theaters up in Midtown. But it's still, he he packed an entire venue. But uh, what about y'all? What have you what have you seen in recent years that just absolutely floored you? Uh, I mean, I got to go see uh, John Mulaney's Kid Gor- Kid Gorgeous at Radio City before nice. that special came out, and that was like. I mean, I I saw New in Town, his first special on Comedy Central, and I think I've watched it easily 15 times since it came out. So me and, and some of my stand-up buddies were, like, on this chain, and as soon as tickets for that show came out, like, we jumped on it. And 
my my favorite part about that is then getting able to be like a little snooty about like oh well I heard him say it differently like when I saw him Absolutely. like he yeah. added on this other joke and you I guys had the same thing with Dave that. Chappelle and Sticks and Stones like well my version of Sticks and Stones that I saw was better than the one that's on Netflix so yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so I, I I I love lording that over people well just being there uh, when it's live and in your face and you can see just the, the it's just a completely different energy. It just it makes you realize just how brilliant what they what they're doing actually is mm-hmm. when when you're seeing it come to life right right before your eyes. But yeah, nothing can. I mean, people will say like, oh, well, the book was better than the movie, or the the concert was better live than like on CD. But that, it, when it comes to live performance, yeah, it's a live performance. Like go go see it. Like you don't with movies, you don't have that option to see it live. It doesn't exist. But with comedy, yeah, buy the tickets and go and support your favorite comedians. Yeah, I um. I do not. I I didn't really see a lot of live shows through my life, to be honest. You a handful, uh, you don't a like couple jokes. of them. On the you don't like to laugh. <laughs> I don't. I mean, as I told our editor today, this is not a comedy. This is a documentary with comic relief. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be so. sad and morose with lots of navel, navel gazing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, No, I I shot a lot of funny stuff. I shot like Jacques Tati inspired stuff over the course of it. This little funny moment I remember from Ghost Story. I was trying to be silly. Lee, was I trying to be silly? Was I sufficiently silly on this shoot? You were sufficiently silly. Yelling Uh, at me from across a crowded boulevard in Queens for the Ghost Story homage that I'm sure will make it in the film. Everyone's going (laughs) to get It's going to be a post credit sequence, I already decided. We already have Um, at least two of those in our notes. (laughs) My uh, my favorite thing I saw live was actually while shooting this. The hardest, I, I mean, listen, I saw like Louis C.K. live at Caroline's at some point, and yeah, I laughed really hard. But like seeing a stranger in that person making me laugh when I didn't know who the fuck they were, and I was just shooting a documentary, so I wasn't even prepared to laugh because I'm just concentrating my brains in multiple directions. Lee, you're gonna have to help me out with this guy's name. He's like Scandinavian or something. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, the, Nor- the Norwegian going, guy. Hey dude, yeah, He's just hey, Norwegian comic. And he just like it was such a shit show, man. Like someone was having a block party or something. Music was cranking through. There's a huge audience, a lot of drunk people. But it was tough to like modulate how you perform. And this guy was just awkward, silent humor. And he somehow flipped his entire game to incorporate the music and use that like the opposite end of deep silence, of awkward silence. It just still made it even sillier that he was always quiet and not saying anything because of the music. That, I, I lost my shit. That's the best when you like, get a genuine surprise. Like someone can be a huge star, but if you're not aware of them, then it's new to you. Like the first time I saw Jim Jeffries, he was already a massive star, but I had no idea who he was. But a friend of mine was in town, and he's like, oh, "Let's go see some comedy." On a whim, just blind, blindly, we bought tickets to go to Caroline's. Jim Jeffries was headlining, and he came out, <laughs> told this completely foul story about. He's on tour in Amsterdam and decided to go to this world famous like like it's not like a whorehouse like a sex shop of just toys, and he bought some vibrating egg to put up his butt. But somehow like the egg cracked and it got stuck up there. And every, whenever he moved, it would like pinch back together and like pinch some skin inside. And anyway, he was talking about all the ways he tried to get it out. And so he thought, oh well, I need to. He thought he needed to eat a lot of really like special food to take like a giant dump to push it out, but he ate the <laughs> wrong food. He ate food that just gave him like horrible diarrhea. So he's like, it's basically having like your thumb over the end of a hose and diarrhea spraying in all yeah, directions. Yeah, yeah. And oh he God. just kept going on and on and on. I was like, like who the fuck is this guy? And then I looked him up afterwards and realized, oh, he's like a massive international superstar. But he was yeah. brand spanking new to me, and I, I howled like for a straight hour. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I got. I, well, I had another great experience. I went uh, down at the Bell House. I saw Rory Scovel a couple years ago, and I he has a great Netflix special called Rory Scovel does stand up for the first time. But he was like, he's been a writer on the Eric Andre show, so he's nice. like very absurd and like. That, that special in particular, like, it really does, it It kind of reminded me of Live at the Purple Onion in that you don't, it's, like, I know he's prepared, but it seems like he's not. It really does have the feeling that, like, he's just, like, making this up as he goes along. So I was so obsessed with that special, and then a friend of mine found out he was coming to the Bell House, so we went to see him, and... What was so cool about it, I thought, was that he he only had, like, a half an hour of new material, and then he basically, like, took a break to talk to the audience and was just like, listen, guys, like, I'm working on my new special, but I don't actually have that long left. Like, if there's something you want to talk about or if there's another joke I could do from, like, my last special, like, let me know. And it was just, like, this very, like, raw, vulnerable moment where I feel like comedians don't, like, yeah, they'll talk about, like, hard shit on stage, but, like in a way that they're not actually revealing a lot, like, or they're not actually being like super, super vulnerable. So I just thought for him to be like, yeah, no, I don't actually have an hour yet. I'm just working through it. Like, thank you guys. Like he was so genuinely like thanking us for being there, that that was, I don't know. It like reminded me that like, oh yeah, like these people are still people and they're working people. on it. And it's like, it was a very cool moment. Yeah, They're, they're practicing yep. their craft. I think the best example of somebody just like, interacting with the audience at the end of a set ever saw when uh, those the, during the sticks and stones at the end of it Chappelle said look I'm going to give y'all like 45 minutes you can ask me anything you like any question you like and like, there's a mic up front y'all just get in a line and people just started I mean and of course people are trying to either sound important or even worse trying to sound funny it's like the funniest guy in the world is on stage don't try to sound funny when you're talking to Dave yeah. Chappelle but of course knuckleheads will try to do that anyway and even though he had no idea what subjects were coming at him, he just improvised and came up with the funniest fucking answer. Because not only was he answering their questions and being spontaneous, he was still managing to be just like earth-shatteringly funny. And I, I was just sitting there just like my jaw dropping in awe at his ability to be brilliant and totally just improvisational all at once. And I'd never seen somebody just work a room quite like that. I think Chappelle, one of his th like one of his most amazing strengths is that I don't know if there's a comedian who handles silences better. Yeah, like yeah. he is so comfortable in silence, he will wait for as long as he needs to, <laughs> and like just build. And he doesn't care. No, he's got he this aura of cigarette. confidence that just exudes, like, yeah. exudes from him like a, like like a That's like a warm totally. glow and. Yeah, like he doesn't even need the laughs. He's a 25-year veteran at this point. I mean, he's he's been there, seen it all, done that, et cetera, and so forth. Nothing's going to shake him. Nothing's going to surprise him. And I think creatively, he's at the top of his game and doing some of the best work of his career. Yeah, yeah, but even he, but I love even when he. I forget which because he dropped all of those on Netflix so fast, but. Uh, the, in one of them where he's like, honestly, like this is getting a little boring. I'm so good at this. Like <laughs> when, he put, when he pulls the joke out of a fishbowl and he's like, I'll, yeah. I'll get you back there. Wait for it. Wait but, for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But also when you hear about how it's like 45 and the amount of drug and alcohol abuse, uh, Joe Rogan was opening for him. And on his show, he's talking about what it was like to open for Chappelle right now. And he says, well, here's the deal. Like you'll go on stage with him for hours and you're drinking and you're smoking weed the entire time. Then at the end of the show, 
you'll probably take mushrooms and then you'll stay up all night and then he'll rent out a movie theater and he'll play like he wanted to watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so he rented out a movie theater it's like at six in the morning while on mushrooms they're all watching this movie then they get on a plane like at nine in the morning fly to another city sleep for a few hours get up do the whole thing again I mean it's not easy on the immune system or your constitution that doesn't sound fun to me yeah it's I mean and and he's just I mean yeah if you if you go on the road with Chappelle you got to be prepared to get to go to go to the dark side yeah, I just that's I couldn't that's believe that's just like right. what he does what he does to his body at, at, in his advanced years, but he's just yeah he, right now he he's looks, he's in the sweet spot. He looks great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. I was about to say physically, he looks like he's starting to get bloated and like it's starting. Oh, to it's like muscles. Wear on. It's, all, it's all muscle. Muscles. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's a little jelly and everything too. A little puffy. You no, know, so you look at like he's late nineties when he had that high pitched voice and he was like just skinny as like as a, as a string bean. Now I think he does a lot of like boxing yeah, yeah. and working out. So he's definitely he's packed on some uh, some old man muscles. Yeah. I, I want to give one shout out. Very very small comic. Very 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 small little known comic. The mainstream won't know about him, but uh. 100% fresh Adam Sandler on Netflix legitimately did make me fucking laugh my ass. And like Lee and I remember were, uh, Jamie, you might be aware. I like watching Adam Sandler movies. I don't care how bad they get. I just Dude, really Jones like one watching of my favorite movies of last year. I fucking loved Uncut. All right, I know, but yeah, you know what I mean. But, but the have other you Adam Sandler movie Halloween? No, hell yeah, no. Yeah, Hoobie Halloween. We watched Hoobie Halloween. You see, with the two of us watched With Gusto. With gusto, I think what I love that special age is because it's so disarming. It's him just being purely funny. It's not scripted or anything. He just wants to tell a joke. He tells a fuck. But also for me, like we were talking about that special, like for the next month or so. I watched it two times that month. You probably watched it two times that month. And then I got to reading it. And that special also talked about uh, the director who is the director of QV Halloween, mind you, Stephen Brill. Um, his biggest uh, influence is also Jonathan Demme. Uh, Steve Brill, sense. did he do, did he direct Little Nicky? Possibly, yeah. He's been, like, working with him. All the yeah, I met him, now. actually, in the studio commissary at Sony. I was uh, visiting a friend of mine named Tom McNulty, who I had interned under. He was the assistant to a producer named Sid Gannis. I went to visit him on the lot when they were making Little Nicky, and Steve Brill just happened to be walking through. But Steve Brill, for people who are really looking uh, closely, if you watch Sex, Lives, and Videotape, he does a, uh, a Marlon Brando impersonation at the bar and things like that. But he's been around for, for decades. He was... I guess he, he was nice to stop and talk for a little while, but yeah, that's that was the last time I even heard his name mentioned he twenty years like ago. A, he seems like a pro, to be honest with you. I mean, but like putting aside Hubie Halloween and his other work, this I thought this special was just so immaculately well edited, and the way it just goes from like these little sets and bits he's doing in the beginning, and slowly but surely the venues get bigger, the sets get bigger. He gets his guitar out, he sings the entire fucking ballads of Chris Farley. I am crying by the end of the fucking special because of that song. You know, like, that's an incredibly powerful special to the point where I was telling Lee, I'm like, that's a fucking movie. That's one of my favorite movies of that year, hands down. And also my boy PTA, you know, was director of photography one of the nights that they shot. So that's Very always cool. awesome to throw that down. But, yeah, I, I, I love that special and I still watch it maybe once a year or so. I, uh, yeah, I just want to throw that out there. Little boy Sandler, he needs he needs all the help he can get. Yeah, he needs a little, <laughs> exactly. A little more publicity. Yeah, I think he uh, I think he signed the biggest contract with Netflix of anybody alive on this planet. Like, I mean, he gets it, they the Netflix is in the Adam Sandler business. So when he works with a cool director, then I'm I'm happy to throw it down. But I guess I have this enormous sentimental affection for that late '90s period, right around the time of sure. uh, of Billy Madison, where I was at the perfect age and had the perfect <clears throat> chemical intake to be like his 
ideal target audience. So yeah, just I, I was all I was up his butt all the way in the in the mid nineties. So. Happy Happy Gilmore was like a comedy touchstone for me. I I quoted that movie for a solid five years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think his movies were so quotable back then where you would forget that the lines that you and your friends are using were actually lines from the movie. Where you start to actually think, oh, this is something we came up with. Like, no, you're stealing <laughs> from these funny movies. But a friend yeah. of mine recently uh, said something, went, jackpot. I was like, what is that? It's like, oh, that's a Billy Madison line. But for like for decades, I've been thinking that uh, it was something he kind of cooked up on his own. But yeah, Adam Sandler's influence in the mid-90s was massive. That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I guess that that's all I have to speak on the matter. <laughs> all right. So just as a reminder, what's going on, where can people find the, I'm a good friend. When can people expect to see the doc? Where can people find you on social media? Now's the time to plug any and all things related to y'all's enterprises. Um, I can be found on Twitter at the Karadimov and, uh, on Instagram at, uh, MK. A-R-A-D-I-M-O-V, Karadimov as well. Uh, there's a link to I'm a Good Friend at both of my homepages on those two platforms. Uh, you could also check it out at Vimeo and YouTube if you want to search for it there. And I'll include and, a link in the uh, description of the show. And yeah, as well. and I'm sure. And thank you for that. And so, yeah, that's where people could check that out. And I'll let, uh, and, and uh, yeah, the doc, uh, we're in post right now. We're probably hopefully going to have a rough cut in a week or so. We just handed a script to our editor, and uh, yeah, we're just, you know, we're on well, the ground. Whenever the doc running. is, I guess it sounds like you're going to do festivals long before you post it, so I probably won't have a link to the doc in the show notes. But uh, yeah, just oh, yeah, yeah, tag yeah. me no, on social media, be, and yeah, I'll, I'll gladly give it a Probably several boost. months, to be honest with you, like two months from now. I hope like in the beginning of next year's winter, we get to drop it. And uh you know, hopefully you'll have us on to talk more about that because I'd love to talk about D.A. Pennebaker and all those guys and the Maisel brothers and uh, Charlotte Zwerin. So, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, but that's on the horizon. And, and Charlotte uh, Zwerin made uh, Straight No Chaser, one of my favorite jazz documentaries about um, Thelonious Monk. That movie fucking rules. I got to check that out, man. I got to check. I mean, I only know her in association to her work with the Maisels. So, um, but yeah, I uh, yeah, that's what we got on the burner. And uh, Lee? Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at LiliPads. Um, and yeah, there's a link in my bio to the special. And that's where if I'm going to be performing at all, um, I'll post about it there. So hopefully, I think I have a show coming up later in the month. That'll probably be like the last outdoor show before it gets too cold. Or not, because it was 70 degrees last week. Yeah, yeah it um, feels like summer right now. I've got mosquitoes like, coming in. Th- what? It's yeah. fucking November. Yeah, like, it's this mos- terrifying, man. supposed to be dead. <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah follow me there and any of our comedy and and film stuff um you'll find out there beautiful well we hope yeah. you've enjoyed this episode please remember to leave a rating review all the good stuff you can find us on twitter and facebook and all the usual places and if you want some short form content you can have my youtube channel geek when james hancock where i will be posting hobo with the high kick in the very near future fingers crossed awesome. but make sure you hunt down lee and mikhail online as well but we can't thank enough for listening we greatly appreciate it but more importantly as always onwards and upwards it ain't like it used to be but uh, it'll do You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.